Well, good evening and welcome to Socrates in the City. It is wonderful to see all of you uh, here this evening. My name, I'm going to be very upfront about this, my name is Eric Metaxas. Um, I will be your host this evening. Many of you uh, know that uh, I had the privilege of starting Socrates quite a long time ago, uh, back in the year 2000. Remember when that used to be the future? Yeah, it really isn't anymore, is it? But uh, it's so long ago that when we started this, uh, it was in the fall of 2000, no one had yet heard of the phrase, hanging Chad. (laughs) And in fact, it's so long ago now that many of you have already forgotten what a hanging Chad is. It's extraordinary. Um, Anyway, uh, the reason that I started what we call Socrates in the City is because I felt there was not a place in Manhattan where the big questions were being addressed, questions about what we like to call life, God, and other small topics. Feel free to titter. That's what that's all about. Um, But I, I really felt that in a city as influential as New York City, it was important to have a forum where the big questions were being asked. Uh, Of course, Socrates famously said the unexamined life is not worth living, so we've called our events Conversations on the Examined Life. Uh, And we've done our best over the years to bring you speakers who've asked the big questions and tried to answer them. We've heard, of course, from world-class scientists like Dr. Francis Collins and Sir John Polkinghorne, from thinkers and writers and philosophers like Dr. Jean Bethke Elstein, Dr. Peter Kraft, Oz Guinness, Roger Scruton, Father Richard John Newhouse, Chuck Colson, Paul Vitz, Robbie George, many, many others. You can see on our website uh, who has spoken uh, here. And of course, tonight we're going to hear from uh, Rabbi Sir Jonathan Sachs. But recently, as we were thinking about the history of Socrates and of all this, the, the speakers we've had and the clubs where we've done it, we thought it would be really important to sort of stop and find out what you, the Socrates audience, um, were interested in. Uh, what events appeal to you, what speakers appeal to you, and we took a, a poll, and my friends, uh, the results, I have to be very honest with you, uh, are deeply disturbing. Uh, yeah, we asked Socrates regulars what they were looking for in an event, and the top three responses that you gave me were A, unlimited wine, and, and sangria, but um, we don't, uh, B, hold it in a, in a fancy club, some of you wrote fancy Schmancy. I don't know if you realize that's really not a word. Um, and, and the third thing you said was a speaker with a British accent. Um, that's just so sad, really. But uh, I, I just try to read these results and just try to be objective about it. And, 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 and I realized that when we asked specifically um, what kind of speakers you were looking for, what kind of topics, 50% responded... Uh, checked off, we couldn't care less as long as they have a British accent. Um, Even more disturbing, the other 50% wrote in, we could care less. We could care less. I want to tell you that uh, that was disturbing to me to realize that that's the kind of audience that we're attracting to Socrates in the city. Uh, And in in their write-in responses, some people actually use the word irregardless. And I just, uh, please don't do that. Don't ever do that again. Um, almost all those responding to the survey, survey said that if the speaker had some kind of fancy title, that that would also be helpful in attracting them. And as you know, in the past, we had Sir John Polkinghorne twice, and we've had 
Baroness uh, Cox. And I realized that I really shouldn't judge these responses. That was just my personal issues, judging you as being illiterate and foolish. And I realized that that's just about me because, um, you know, after all, when it comes to Socrates and City, we say the customer is always right. And so tonight, in response to what you filled out, we bring you unlimited wine, a fancy club, and a speaker with a British accent and a fancy title. So I just want to say I hope you're happy tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And he was very hard to get, but uh, I just, I promise you that we will always have that kind of a speaker. Um, it's, it is about you, the customer. May I call you that? Um, we want to provide you with a quality evening, evening, even if your definition of quality is, shall we say, inherently shallow and bogus. I still think it's not for us to judge. Um, some of you in the poll uh, said that you wanted more of a, a carnival atmosphere, for example, with fun, fun ways to win prizes. And, um, and, and you overwhelmingly uh, asked us to provide one of those dunking tanks where you throw a baseball at a target and try to dunk some, some prominent person, of course, in, in uh, Socrates City, that would probably be the, the speaker. And I'm sorry we weren't able to accommodate you for tonight, um, but I promise you in the future we will have one of those dunking tanks because I think you guys, you deserve that. Let me just say that. Um, and maybe we'll have some fried dough with, with powdered sugar and some orange drinks for everybody, and we'll have a good time. Now, <clears throat> we aim to please. Uh, so before I introduce... Rabbi Sachs, I just want to acknowledge Dr. Herb London, who spoke at Socrates earlier this year. Where's, where's Herb? Where'd he go? Has he gone? He ran. There he is. Herb London. Now, if you speak at Socrates in the city, as Dr. Herb London has done, you get to return at any time for no charge. And, that's, and you get to come to the dinner. Now, that's quite a deal, and I don't blame Dr. London for taking us up on it. Uh, he's also brought his wonderful wife, uh, Vicki. We're glad you could be here, Vicki. Um, of course, the free ride does not include spouses, I'm sorry to say, so we'll, we'll talk about that. I'll give you a break. I'll give you a break. Um, okay, now tonight, as you already know, otherwise you wouldn't be here, we are in for a really special treat. Uh, we're about to hear from none other than Rabbi Sir Jonathan Sachs. In case you just stumbled in off the street, let me explain to you that Rabbi Sachs has been Chief Rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth since September 1st, 1991. Uh, he is the sixth incumbent since 1845. So obviously this is quite a gig we're talking about. That's uh, very impressive. It's like having tenure, only much more so, or much less. He's what please. That's really a type of a joke. He's widely recognized as one of the world's leading contemporary exponents of Judaism. Prime Minister Gordon Brown said of him, quote, the chief rabbi is not just a distinguished scholar, but a distinguished spiritual leader and a globally respected ambassador for the Jewish community here in Britain. Former Prime Minister Tony Blair said, Jonathan Sachs is truly a towering figure in the intellectual life of Britain today. Now that's, I, I hope you agree, that's extremely uh, impressive. Now you find out Blair also once said that about Ringo Starr, but I think he didn't, I think in that case he was joking. In that case he was joking. Um, so we really are extremely fortunate tonight. I think as Americans it's hard for us to realize uh, how fortunate we are. I'm very excited. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, the chief rabbi uh, before uh, 
He became chief rabbi. He was the principal of Jews College London, the world's oldest rabbinical seminary, as well as rabbi of the Golders Green and Marble Arch synagogues in London, and he gained rabbinic ordination from Jews College as well as from London's Yeshiva Etz Chaim. His secular career has also been a distinguished one. Uh, He's been visiting professor of philosophy at the University of Essex, Sherman lecturer at Manchester University, Riddle lecturer at Newcastle University, Cook lecturer at the universities of Oxford, Edinburgh, and St. Andrews, and visiting professor at the Hebrew University, Jerusalem. Uh, There's more. If you need to take a cigarette break, now would be a good time, because this list (laughs) is very, very impressive. It's almost... You'd have to be a thousand years old, really, to have done this... He is currently visiting professor of theology at King's College London. He holds honorary doctorates from the universities of Bar-Ilan, Cambridge, Glasgow, Haifa, Middlesex, Yeshiva University in New York, University of Liverpool, St. Andrews University, and Leeds Metropolitan University. He's an honorary fellow of Gonville and KS College, Cambridge, and King's College London. In September of 2001, the Archbishop of Canterbury conferred on him a doctorate of divinity in recognition of his first 10 years in the chief, uh, how do you say this, rabbinate? Mark will tell me. Now, I have to say, when you have that many honorary degrees, you have to be tempted to, to scalp some of them because you couldn't possibly use all of them. Uh, I don't think we've ever had a speaker who's had anything like that number. Most impressively, of course, Rabbi Sachs was awarded a knighthood in the Queen's birthday honors list in June 2005. Anybody else in the room ever get a knighthood? Raise your hand, please, if you... I didn't, I didn't think so, okay? So I want you to be quiet and listen to the speaker. The chief rabbi is a frequent contributor to radio, television, and the national press. Six of his books have been serialized in the national British press. The London Times described his faith in the future as, quote, one of the most significant declarations made by a religious leader in this country for many years. The Daily Telegraph wrote that his book, The Dignity of Difference, quote, stands far above other books about globalization and the so-called clash of civilizations, both for what it has to say and for the grace with which it says it. Rabbi Sachs is a regular contributor to the Times, in which he writes a monthly column. He's been married since 1970 to his wife, Elaine, also known as Lady Sachs. We have the privilege of her here this evening. Uh, Yes, thank you. Welcome. They have three uh, children and three grandchildren, and we have the privilege of hearing from Rabbi Sachs this evening. Rabbi, please come and join us. Thank you. Well, Eric, I think any words I could add would be strictly superfluous, but uh, at least I I do uh, promise to have a British accent, although that may wear off as the evening progresses. And Eric, you may be interested to know that we have just such a club in London which loves speakers with an American accent, and we might even promise you a dunking if you behave yourself. Uh, friends, I, to, 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 I have never ever spoken in a society called, uh, which bore the wonderful name of Socrates, so I just share with you one of my favorite stories, uh, which Bertrand Russell tells in his autobiography. He says that a very strange man with a wild look in his eyes knocked on his door one day and said, You Lord Russell? Yes, said Bertrand Russell. You're a philosopher, aren't you? Russell said, yes. Good, he says. I want to discuss philosophy with you. 
Russell said, have you ever read any philosophy? And the man said, no. And Russell said, don't you think you ought to read some philosophy before we have our discussion? And the man said, yes. So Russell gave him his three-volume work, Principia Mathematica, which is one of the most dense and incomprehensible works <laughs> ever written. A week later, the man knocked on the door, and Russell said, did you read my book? And the man said, yes. Did you agree with it? And the man said, well, everything except one paragraph. What is that, said Russell? Well, you know in your book you say, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. I disagree. Russell said, I thought that was the only sentence in the book with which you might agree. Why do you disagree? And the man heaved himself up to his full height and said, because I, sir, I am Socrates. <laughs> we get them like that in Judaism as well. Or they, they call themselves the Messiah. So uh, one way or another, it is an honor to be with you in the city with the spirit of Socrates very much with us. Friends, I was asked to speak tonight about a book I wrote, really about British politics, European politics, uh, called The Home We Build Together. It is a book uh, about moving beyond multiculturalism. And I thought I would do something which rabbis usually do, actually, and which I haven't done in the book, which is to tell a story. In this case, the story of how I came to write this book, because it's just, I like stories. As Elie Wiesel said, God created man because God loves stories. So let me tell you the story, and here it is. Uh, <clears throat> Elena and I have cherished the friendship for now ooh, uh, 13, 14 years with a beloved friend who went on to become Prime Minister of Britain. His name is Tony Blair. And we had known one another for a while. And we, you know, we long before he became Prime Minister. And uh, Tony Blair, as you probably know, was and is a very religious man. You will probably also know and this is very strange because American culture in this respect is so different from British culture that if you're prime minister, it is impossible ever to mention anything religious. Tony Blair's press secretary, Alastair Campbell, famously said, we don't do God. And so for 10 years, while Tony Blair was prime minister, he never publicly spoke about his faith. As a matter of interest, uh, when he sees being prime minister, I phoned him up and I said, you can now do God. And uh, he and I, did, well, I did the first interview with Tony Blair on BBC television in which he spoke very beautifully and very movingly about his faith. However, because he wasn't able to speak publicly about his faith, we used to have wonderful conversations together about the things he couldn't talk about in public. So we used to meet regularly, and for 30 or 40 minutes we'd discuss the issues at hand. He with his private secretary next to him, me with somebody from my office next to me, taking notes of the meeting. 
And for the last 15 or 20 minutes of the meeting, he'd usher them out of his study in 10 Downing Street, and we'd just sit together and study Bible together. Now, Tony Blair read the Bible every single night. And always he wanted to discuss the bit of the Bible that he had read the previous night, uh, which meant I never knew in advance which bit we were going to talk about. This was sometimes embarrassing, you know, I'd find myself plunged into the middle of Jeremiah or Job with no forewarning, and I had to think rather fast. Anyway, on one occasion, he said to me, you know, having ushered everyone out, he said, Jonathan, I've come to the boring bit. I said, which boring bit, Prime Minister? Because it is conceivable that some bits of the Bible may at some times be boring. And he said, oh, you know that bit, that bit at the end of Exodus about the building of the tabernacle, the Mishkan, does go on a bit, doesn't it? And I said, well, actually, Prime Minister, it goes on a great deal. Just to set it in context, I said, you think in terms of a story, in terms of column inches. Do you have that concept in America? How many, how many column inches are devoted to a story? I said, there are two acts of creation in the Mosaic books. God creates the universe. The Israelites create the tabernacle in the wilderness. How many column inches does the Bible give to God creating the universe? How many verses? 34 verses. 31 of Genesis 1, 3 of Genesis 2, 34 verses. How many verses does it dedicate to the building of the tabernacle? A lot, yeah. Uh, between five and six hundred verses. It takes almost 20 times as long for the Israelites to build a sanctuary, build a synagogue, as it takes God to create the universe. Mind you, does that surprise you? <laughs> Synagogues are built by committee. Um, so I, I was a little bit pushed at short notice to explain this rather inexplicable feature of biblical prose. But I did my best. I said the reason, Prime Minister, that the creation takes so, lot, so few verses and the building of the tabernacle takes so many is that it is not difficult for an infinite, omniscient creator to make a home for humanity. What is difficult is for finite, fallible human beings to create a home for God. And that is why it takes so long. Anyway, we parted. I thought I'd given a reasonable answer, given the time constraints. But I did not believe that this could possibly be the sum total of an answer. But I filed it away in my mind as a not fully resolved problem, and then other things began to happen which took his mind and my mind far away from it. And what began to happen were intense, acute social tensions. You will be aware of them. In Britain, we had uh, 
riots in the Midlands in the summer of 2001. In Holland, there were incredible tensions some years later after the murder of the filmmaker Theo van Gogh. And a lot of the conversation in Britain and in Holland turned around the concept known as multiculturalism. Have you come across that concept here in the States? You have. For the first time, people began to ask questions about multiculturalism because no one had pursued multiculturalism more deeply than Britain and Holland. And multiculturalism was supposed to make a society more tolerant. But, in fact, the facts on the ground seem to suggest exactly the opposite, that multicultural Britain and Holland were far less tolerant than they had been before. And uh, so the question arose, how do we create social cohesion, a sense of a society to which we all belong? How do we recreate the sense of the common good? And as I was thinking about it, I suddenly realized that this was the problem that faced Moses when he took the Israelites out of Egypt. I would even call the book of Exodus the making or the birth of a nation. And as you are aware from the biblical narrative, how do you turn a group of escaping slaves into a nation, into what the Bible calls in Exodus 19, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? First of all, the Bible, in a very strange way, actually describes the Israelites as a multicultural group. They were 12 different tribes. Very interesting. The Bible seems to emphasize that 12-fold split. Secondly, along with them went what the Bible calls a mixed multitude of other ethnicities. And thirdly, they don't get much more fractious than the Israelites in the book of Exodus. Well, how do you turn these people into a nation? As you know, God sends them signs and wonders, ten plagues. He liberates them from slavery. You would have thought that would have turned them into a cohesive and basically grateful group. Did it? Not really. Whatever God did for them, they complained. He gave them freedom. They complained. They came into the desert. They complained. There's no water. God sends them water from the rock. They all say it's too bitter. It's not Perrier. (laughs) Says Moses, throw the staff into the water, make it sweet. No food. He sends them food from heaven. Manna. Too boring. They complain. He sends them the greatest miracle of all time. He divides the Red Sea for them. And for a moment, in the Hebrew, they believed in God and in Moses, his servant. How long did that last? Three days. And then they were complaining again. It was summed up for me in my favorite Jewish story of all time. It concerns Max Goldberg, who, in his early 70s, suffered a minor heart attack and was rushed to a hospital that I am told is one of the finest 
in the United States, Massachusetts General. And there he was treated for seven days. After seven days, he checks himself out of the hospital and has himself transferred to an extremely run-down, dilapidated Jewish hospital in the Lower East Side. Dr. Cohen wants to know, why did he leave this magnificent hospital, Massachusetts General, to come to this run-down hospital in the Lower East Side? He says, Goldberg, what was wrong with the hospital? The doctors, didn't they understand your condition? He says, doctors, double Einsteins about the doctors, I can't complain. Was it the nurses? Didn't they look after you nicely? Nurses. Angels in human form about the nurses. I can't complain. Was it the food? The food. Manna from heaven about the food. I can't complain. So why did he come here? And he, with a big smile he says, because here I can complain. <laughs> so that is the Jewish people. So what does God do if the miracles, the plagues, the deliverances, the division of the Red Sea doesn't turn them into a nation? What can you do? And he delivers the final, most remarkable miracle of all. The only time in history that God made a personal appearance in front of a whole nation on Mount Sinai. And do you know what? It worked. For 40 days, the people were in awe of that unique event. Day 41, what do they do? Make a golden calf. Now, what are you going to do? How do you get one better than the division of the Red Sea and the appearance of God himself to the entire nation on Mount Sinai? How do you go one better than that? There is no one better than that. And it is then that God does the most unexpected thing of all. He says to Moses, in effect, you want to turn a fractious group of individuals into a nation, a responsible nation that coheres? Get them to build something together. Get them to build a house for me. And do you know what? Read through the biblical narrative and you will see it worked. For the whole time that they were building the tabernacle, no murmuring, no rebellion, no complaints. Moses asks them for voluntary contributions. And what do they do? They give so much that Moses has to tell them to stop because they've given too much. It is virtually the only moment in the Bible when the entire people is unified into a sense of community. And I've suddenly realized a profound truth that it is not what God does for us that changes us. What changes us is what we do for God. And suddenly I realized 
that that was what the building of the sanctuary was all about and why we are told it in such detail because the sanctuary was the supreme metaphor of a society, a society indeed with God at the center. And so I decided that one idea that we had lost sight of in all this multiculturalism was society is the home we build together. In the Bible, the home is a home of the divine presence. In a secular age, it's a home for something not insignificant, for the all of us that transcends any of us. And society, I suddenly realized, is not made by what we get, but by what we give, not made by what is done for us, but by what we do for others. Society is made not by what we claim, but by what we build. Now, I have set out this story in a kind of light-hearted way. But the truth is that the problem is anything but light-hearted. The real question, and it is a real and significant and open question, is can the nation-state especially in Europe, hold together in the 21st century. We have seen some very difficult signs. I mentioned the riots in Britain in the Midlands in 2001. The government report into those riots called the Cantle Commission spoke about people in different ethnic and religious communities living parallel, non-intersecting lives. The uh, chairman, president of the Commission for Racial Equality, Trevor Phillips spoke at the time of Britain sleepwalking into segregation. And you will remember that it was not only Britain and Holland, but France that had major riots rampaging out of control in the summer of both 2005 and 2006. And then we, I as a Jew, feel this particularly because we have seen the return to Europe of anti-Semitism barely 60 years after the Holocaust. Let me tell you that in January of 2009, there were 350 anti-Semitic incidents in Britain in one month alone. 350 in an entire year is bad, but in one month, totally unprecedented, and the same number in France. And therefore... You will say, as many people in Britain said, well, this hasn't got to do with Britain. It's got to do with the Middle East. It's got to do with the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. But I have to tell you, when a synagogue is firebombed, when a Jewish school is burned to the ground, when Jews are attacked on the streets of London and Paris, those are Jewish targets. They are not Israeli targets. They are targets here in, in Europe. They are not targets in the Middle East. And when societies like Holland and Britain, that in the 17th century and 18th century were the world leaders in tolerance, when they become intolerant, that is serious. And that is why I argued that we have to move beyond multiculturalism. Multiculturalism was intended to create a more tolerant society Because it said, 
We're all going to be treated equally. There is no one dominant culture. There's no national identity. There's no overarching sense of who and what we are. There are many different traditions, faiths, and they're all equal. But that is a recipe not for integration, but for segregation. Not segregation in the old sense, involuntary, but in a new sense of voluntary segregation. And again, I want to tell you the thinking behind multiculturalism, and again, I'm going to use a metaphor. The metaphor I use for a multicultural society is society as a hotel. You know what a hotel is. You pay your money, you get your services, and you, you have your own room, and you can do whatever you like so long as you don't disturb the other guests. Although I, I do know of one very intrepid traveler who used to feel that an alarm call when he needed to get up was just a little too abrasive. And so he used to solve the problem by uh, placing an alarm call for the two rooms on either side of him. <laughs> Woke gradually to the muffled sounds of indignation. Anyway, but in society, you have your own room, you can do whatever you like. And that is the politics of a multicultural society, what is called technically the procedural state, the Rawlsian liberalism. You pay your taxes, you get your services. The competition between the parties, as it so often is in Europe today, is not a competition of ideologies. It's a competition of two management styles who can give you the best services for the fewest taxes. And the result is that in such a society, every ethnic group, every religious group has its own room, some a little smaller, some a little bigger. The only trouble with it is if you say society is a hotel, tell me, do you feel that you belong to a hotel? You don't put down roots in a hotel. You don't feel loyalty to a hotel. A hotel is where you happen to be. A hotel is not who you are. In a hotel, there's no need to get to know your fellow guests. There's nothing to do together. A hotel is a society of strangers, each in their separate rooms. And that is what the multicultural society became. In Midlands towns where... Here's the Muslim area, here are the Christians, here are the others. And no, nothing forcing them together. And that is what we've got to move beyond. I don't believe we all have to be the same. I did, after all, write a book called The Dignity of Difference. But I believe that because every group is different, each one of us has something distinctive to give. And what matters is that we give it to the common good. That is important. And so, for instance, what do I feel that we have to do to create the home we build together? Number one, I think we have to recognize that civil society has a logic of its own. In Europe, for the last 20, 30, 50 years, we have assumed that whatever the problem is, it has one of three solutions, either the state or the market or science. State will give you a political solution. The market will give you an e e economic solution. 
science will give you a technological solution. But what about the problems that can't have a political or a market or a technological solution? Because they're about relationships between people. And those cannot be dealt with if society is just a hotel. Society has to be something that brings different groups together. So let me give you some examples. Number one, we had a synagogue in a, a Welsh town called Swansea. And it's suffered a uh, uh, vandalism and arson attack. Now, the Jewish community in Swansea is very small and very old. And so to see their synagogue desecrated and their Torah scrolls, you know, ripped apart and thrown out of the window, for them it was a trauma. And there are no other Jews there to give them that support. But of course, in Britain we have a, a council of Christians and Jews, so who helped clean up the synagogue, re restore the Torah scrolls, redecorate the building? The local Christians. And when I went to reconsecrate the synagogue, more than half of the congregation were local Christians. And I thought, that is where Good relations between faiths really make a difference. Or, since 2001, I don't know if you have it here in the States, we've had a National Holocaust Memorial Day. Do you have that here in the States? We, we have had it since 2001, 27th of January. It's a national event. Prime Minister, the Queen, a member of the royal family. It's a big national thing. In 2004, we decided as a group that as it was the 10th anniversary of the genocide in Rwanda, we would use Holocaust Memorial Day, although we began and ended with the Holocaust, we decided to also bring the problems of the survivors of Rwanda to public attention. I have to say I was apprehensive at first. I thought, how will 80-year-old middle Europeans get on with young African men and women? I needn't have worried for a moment. It turns out that there is a Freemasonry of suffering. One survivor recognizes another across all barriers of language and culture. It was a beautiful occasion. Six months later... The woman, Mary Kayatesi, who's been working for 10 years with the survivors of Rwanda, phoned me up in great excitement. Chief Rabbi, I've got to come around and see you. And she told me this. She said, for 10 years, I've been working in obscurity. The only people who helped us was the, the Jewish community. But for 10 years, we, were, we felt we were almost alone. She said, because of Holocaust Memorial Day and the publicity we got, I've just been made International Woman of the Year. The Queen's just invited me for tea in Buckingham Palace. And best of all, the government have given me, British government, 12 million pounds to build AIDS clinics in Kigali. And the fact that the Holocaust survivors were able to help the survivors of this terrible tragedy, I thought these are great human beings because I wouldn't have done it without the Holocaust survivors saying we should. Or, for instance, um, for instance, you know, on the BBC, I do something very odd. It's so odd, it's unbelievable. In the middle of our daily morning news program, we have something called Thought for the Day, which is a kind of religious reflection on an event in the news. 
I love doing it because it's pure sadism. There is the country getting up in the morning ready to face a bright new day, and there's somebody giving you a sermon while you're trying to eat your breakfast. Anyway, but I sometimes have to go and tell the BBC because they don't like religion much, and they keep trying to get rid of this slot, except their re- listeners keep telling them this is their favorite bit of the whole day, so they really can't do it. But I keep telling them that this one thing has a dramatic result for the whole of Britain. If you look at the news, and I'm sure pretty much must be the same anywhere in the world, and there's religion in the news, what's it in the news for? What? Yeah, terror, civil war, some brutality. And who do you hear? You hear the loudest voices, the angriest voices. Now just work out how I, in the, uh, in the middle of the daily news, have to give a message to a public, 99.5% aren't Jewish. Which incidentally makes it a lot easier. <laughs> what it means is that I and everyone else who does this is forced to deliver a religious message which is both tolerant and gentle. And because that's a major little bit of British culture, it helps us all feel that we're all part of the same society. So that is number one. We have to work on creating a good, tolerant friendly society, and we cannot assume that it can be delegated away to some political or economic or technological solution. No way. Number two, the idea that the society is the home we build together tells us that society is made out of responsibilities, not out of rights. Rights create a grievance culture. They create a culture of competitive victimhood. Everyone complains that we've been oppressed and the next group say, no, we've been persecuted more and as soon as you know it, they're busy persecuting one another. Now, the truth is, just to come back to this biblical episode, when God was giving things to the Israelites, signs, wonders, water from the rock, manna from heaven, protection of the clouds of glory. It didn't unify the people. It didn't lift the people. It didn't pacify the people. What we give to others is what makes us a society, not what others, the government, or anyone else gives to us. And that, too, is important. And then, of course, um, when you begin to think of society as a home you build together, then you begin to have respect for the people who built the first rooms in this home, you know. And don't forget, Britain is a Christian nation. It's not a nation where every single religion stands on equal footing because Christianity has been there a lot longer than anyone else. Jews have been there for 350 plus years. And the others are younger. And it is appropriate that we respect the basically tolerant Christian nature of Britain. But in a multicultural society, do you think they respect the established church? Not that you have an established church. Um, On the contrary. You know, 
I would say Christianity is almost discriminated against in Britain. There's a lady who's wearing a crucifix, and she's a, a, mem- a member of the London airport, Heathrow Airport staff, and she's banned from work until she removes the crucifix. That's crazy. You try to do that to any other religion to ask a Sikh to remove a, a turban or what have you, there'd be riots. And it's crazy, and I refuse to have any part of it. This resulted in one of the strangest events that ever happened in my lifetime. And that is uh, this. Um, Did you have big uh, millennium celebrations here? Yeah? Well, we had big millennium celebrations. We couldn't take part because it was Friday night. It was our Sabbath. Uh, The the Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, actually said to me, uh, Jonathan, we'd love the Jewish community to take part. I said, you know, it's your birthday. You know, we, we're happy for you. But he said, do you think we could... We're asking everyone in Britain, there's a true story, to, to light a candle for the millennium. I said, Archbishop, we'll go one better. We'll light two. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, could the Jews please explain that? Anyway. Um, right, I cannot tell you what an extraordinary thing happened. You would not believe this. Here it is. The big millennium celebrations in the dome, as I say, for obvious reasons, I couldn't be there, but they were going to happen in the millennium dome. And who were determining the shape of the evening? The BBC, because this was, you know, kind of a television spectacular. And believe it or not, they refused to allow a Christian prayer at the millennium. Not televisual enough. Too boring. And the Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, had five meetings with the Home Office that was organizing it and another five with the BBC and got nowhere. Eventually, the BBC said, if you want a prayer, you, will, you can have one at 7.30 p.m. He said, in that case, I'm boycotting the Millennium Celebrations. I'll go to church and you have a nice celebration. This was billed in the British newspapers as a full-blown constitutional crisis. You see, in England, who is the head of the Church of England? The Queen. And the Queen had to be there. She was the centerpiece. But how could she be there if her Archbishop of Canterbury was boycotting the event? When a full-blown constitutional crisis... Anyway, September, here it is, only a few months away... And I'm coming in to the BBC, we always, for my little religious thought for the day, and it's always done live in the studio, and I'm just about to leave, and I hear that the presenter is going on to the next item, which is, should there be a prayer at the millennium? And the two speakers, one was a politician, one was a bishop, neither was in the studio, the BBC probably had the same thing, sends a radio car, if you're a kind of mobile studio, if you can't get in. So they're, all, they're each in their, in their own homes, and, and they're having their little argy-bargy, and I, you know, if there's a good religious row, being a good Jew, I always want to enjoy it, and... Uh, So I'm sitting there listening to this with my headphones. And the program is live, and the program producer has to write on a piece of paper, do you want to join in? Now, no Jew ever refuses an invitation like that. (laughs) 
This actually happened in September 1999. Um, the BBC producer said, uh, thank you very much, politician, the bishop. We, the chief rabbi is still in the studio. What do you think, chief rabbi? So I said, first of all, the millennium only is, exists because it is the 2000th anniversary of Christianity. So to have the millennium without a Christian prayer is stark staring bonkers. <laughs> Secondly, I want to say this as a Jew. As a Jew, this Christian country grants me the freedom and tolerance to pray as a Jew without fear. Should I, as a Jew, not stand up for the right of a Christian in a Christian country to pray without fear? Well, I left the studio thinking, you know, I always enjoy a good row. Ten o'clock the next morning, the phone goes, George Carey, Archbishop of Canterbury, Jonathan, you've done it, we got the prayer at the millennium. Now, if it takes a chief rabbi to get a Christian prayer in a Christian country in the millennium, something is wrong. So, I hope I've given you the shape of this. The truth is, we are not all in our little separate worlds. We have to work together for the good of all. And that means that we have to recognize that we must make space for others whose views are different from ours. It means we have to respect the history and character of the nation in whom we find ourselves and with whom we identify. And there are times when belonging is made not by what we receive from the state, but by what we build for others. And the greatest sense of belonging comes when I can show, when any new arrival in Britain can show his or her grandchild something in the country and say, I helped build that. Building is the way to achieve belonging. So that is the argument I have made. I hope it makes sense to you. But just in case um, you're not convinced, I end with a quote with the man, from the man with whom I began, not normally someone with whom one expects a support for a religious position, namely Bertrand Russell himself. And listen to the words Bertrand Russell wrote in the introduction to his history of Western philosophy. And it is so relevant to now, I cannot believe it. He wrote it many decades ago. He's talking about Renaissance Italy one of the high points of all human culture. And he says, what had happened in the great age of Greece happened again in Renaissance Italy. Traditional moral restraints disappeared because they were seen to be associated with superstition. The liberation from fetters made individuals energetic and creative producing a rare fluorescence of genius. But the anarchy and treachery, which inevitably resulted from the decay of morals, made Italians collectively impotent, and they fell, like the Greeks, under the domination of nations less civilized 
than themselves, but not so destitute of social cohesion. Now, what a truth that is. If we want to defend our civilization, the greatest civilization the world has known, liberal democracy, the only civilization that has made space for many faiths by respecting one another, then we have to stand up and realize that society is not something that drops ready-made from heaven. We have to work at it because it is the home we build together. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbi Sachs. Uh, as is our tradition here at Socrates in the City, uh, we have time for questions and answers. We always uh, love to remind our audiences that uh, the question, and this is important, the question needs to be in the form of a question. <laughs> now, it's, now, there are some people who miss that, and you'll know who they are in just a few minutes, I'm sure. <laughs> but it has been a real privilege uh, to hear uh, what the chief rabbis had to say, and we'd like to, to hear from any of you who is brave enough to get up and ask a question. And let me just say, it doesn't need to be in a British accent. But that helps. I've got some questions. Okay. Leslie Carranza, since you're the first in line, why don't you go first? W will you move to the United States and run for office? <laughs> and you don't have to answer that. And just start at the top. And then what do you think about um, when you approach the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, you're not allowed to show your crosses? Is that so? That's so. I didn't know that. I was in I, Jerusalem yeah. on a trip, and I had my cross on, and yeah. they said, take it off or you don't go down. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe I shouldn't come to America. Maybe I should go to the Wailing Wall. <laughs> and because, uh, you know, that is the wall for everyone. Each to approach God in their language, out of their own creed, out of the full depth of their own belief. And you will understand, I suppose, I hope it's implicit in what I've said, that I've worked as hard as I possibly can for 18 years to reach out in friendship to other faiths, not only to the Christian communities with whom we have, Elena and I have had the most deep relationship with the Archbishops of Canterbury, the Cardinal Archbishops of Westminster, the Evangelicals, the Free Church, and yes, Father Gregorius of the Greek Orthodox Church. Eric, I want you to know that. And I do believe that Jerusalem is where all prayers unite. It is the place where, as they say, heaven is just a local call. Thank you. Rabbi Sachs, it's a pleasure to hear you speak this evening. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> my question is, uh, cannot liberal democracy also become a form of fundamentalism? Uh, in other words, can it not also define who's in and who's out and define who is excluded and thus discriminate? In other words, um, it seems to me that it, it can become a contradiction in itself. Who do you feel might be excluded? Give me, I, I, you know, I'm, you know, I have to spell it out. 
liberal democracy, uh, I would say, uh, chooses to exclude because it does not uh, embrace those who do not hold its position. For example, I would say Judaism is a classic example. Uh, Judaism is not inclusive, nor is Christianity, or nor, nor, neither is Islam. How do we embrace liberal democracy if we are one of those in groups and, hold to, and hold to its tenets, its core tenets? Um, the answer is, I try and provide in the book. Uh, one of the chapters is actually entitled A Religious Defense of Liberal Democracy. And the, to summarize that defense, <clears throat> liberal democracy is precisely not Athenian democracy, the democracy of Athens, the democracy which sentence. Socrates to death for corrupting the young. And the difference between the democracy of Athens and the democracy of today is that in Hellenist, in Greek liberal democracy, the individual existed to serve the state. In liberal democracy, the state exists to serve the individual. In liberal democracy, the state does not aspire to embody truth goodness and beauty. It aspires to something much less, much more modest, but in, I believe, not less noble. Liberal democracy aspires to keep the peace between contending groups. And liberal democracy has achieved what none of the Abrahamic monotheisms has ever achieved on its own. Never did Jews, Christians, and Muslims succeed in keeping the peace between themselves, indeed, they fought one another and they fought among themselves, so much so that we have the most poignant remark made by a, a, a deputy high priest in the late Second Temple period, which you find in the Jewish rabbinic work called The Ethics of the Fathers, Pirkei Avot, who says, pray for the welfare of the government, for were it not for fear of it, we would eat one another alive. Now, that is how a deputy high priest spoke, not about a Jewish government. You know, the government in charge at the time, a Roman government, the enemy. And yet he said, pray for the welfare of the government because it keeps us from destroying one another. So liberal democracy is great because of the virtue that you least associate with politics, namely humility. I know you don't get terribly far as a politician if you have too much humility, but the political system itself is institutionalized humility. It does not seek to tell us how to live. It does not seek to tell us what is true. It simply says that for there to be peace, we have to have certain procedures, rules, laws, which we all agree for the good of all. And that is why I believe there should be a defense of liberal democracy precisely because it does not aspire to be a substitute for religion. And that's a Jewish defense. That makes sense? Thank you, Rabbi Sachs. Thank you.
Thank you, Rabbi Sachs. Uh, prior to 1961, the paradigm between the Roman Church and the Jewish uh, community was that of Esau and Jacob. And after Pope John XXIII said, I am Giuseppe, I am Joseph, you are Judah, my older brother, the paradigm shifted. Do you see this development of mutual respect and freedom for Jews to be Jews and Christians to be Christians uh, taking over, or is the old paradigm of uh, one at each other's neck, uh, frightened for their life, uh, still in effect? I believe that Pope John XXIII and Nostra Aetate, which came from it, Vatican II, in 1965, was one of the most significant developments in the religious history of humankind. Two faiths that had been estranged for almost 2,000 years with a great series of chapters of suffering came together as brothers and sisters in faith, and that was true greatness. And the result is that I, as a religious leader, cannot allow us to slip back into anything less than a continuation of the spirit of Nostra Aetate, so you will know, and, and as a result, Elaine and I, institutionally, publicly, but especially privately, have been immensely close to the late Cardinal Hume, who was the head of the Catholic Church in Britain when I became chief rabbi, um, and then Cormac Murphy O'Connor, and on Friday of this week, his successor is being consecrated into office, Bishop Henderson of Birmingham, also an old friend. So that when, as you remember, there was a huge controversy about the Pope readmitting a Cardinal Williamson, who was a Holocaust denier, back into the church, Cormac Murphy O'Connor wrote a personal and private letter to me saying how aghast he was at this and weeping over it. And I wrote back to him in the same spirit, and we agreed to publish both letters in the national press so that people could see that between the Cardinal Archbishop and the Chief Rabbi was a bond of friendship that could not be broken by anything or anyone. And that is how we must be. There will be times ahead between Jews and Christians, Jews and Muslims, Christians and Muslims, when relationships come under strain. But the Hebrew word emunah, which is translated as faith, which really means faithfulness, means that we stay together even when times are tough and we never ever go back on the bonds of love and friendship that we once made. So even though there may be turbulences ahead, we will never go back to the way it was before 1961. Uh, Rabbi, um, going back to the question of liberal democracy, um, just the question of the relationship between social cohesion, national cohesion, and individual freedom, and how they can coexist in a society which is so much under stress, not only from all the emotional um, dangers that we see, but also from the bureaucratic day-to-day -day stresses that any government puts on its citizens. 
how do we reconcile the desire to be a community with the desire to be free individuals? I believe communities are built by what I call side-by-side relations, of which I gave you an example in the church in Swansea. There were a whole lot of people who, although um, they practice different faiths and might not normally come into contact with one another, recognize they are part of the same neighborhood and somebody else's distress was their responsibility. Um, I I just think the voluntary, self-imposed restraint that each of us must practice in a free and liberal society, which means, for instance, um, I don't know, um, didn't didn't you send us um, in the 60s or 70s this wonderful invention called the ghetto blaster? (laughs) Which, Which... gave such beauty to an otherwise silent, gentle spring morning (laughs) in Regent's Park. I mean, the thing about Regent's Park is, or Hyde Park, you've been to London, yeah? You know know what it is. These beautiful parks, they are spaces where we can each go and each on equal terms. No matter how rich or poor, no matter what our faith, what our social class, what our occupation, whether we have a job or we don't, we walk through these magnificent gardens, more magnificent than anyone, even the queen herself can command in Buckingham Palace. We are princes and princesses while we're in the park. But that park depends on not turning up your ghetto blaster or not deciding that you would like to give your wife a bouquet of flowers and picking all the roses in the Queen Anne Rose Garden. So freedom depends on voluntary self-restraint. And the park is a good metaphor for it. I've talked about hotels and homes. Here is a park metaphor. And that is the price of freedom. If we need a law, an intrusive law, to stop us doing this, that, and the other, because otherwise we are so disrespectful of others, then we lose our freedom. There was once a I don't know, do you have speed cameras and closed-circuit televisions? You know, people once believed in God. And as long as they believed in God, they knew somebody was watching. (laughs) Well, when they got rid of their belief in God, somebody still needed to be watching. And so you got CCTVs and speed cameras, and we're surrounded by these intrusive devices into our freedom and our privacy. Why? Because we lost the habits of self-imposed restraint. So we've got a choice. Either we freely choose to restrain ourselves so that others can enjoy their freedom as we enjoy ours. Either we do that or we have to use legislation, coercion, intrusive devices, and then we lose our freedom. So that is the choice between us. Thank you. I I hope we'll be able to get to the next uh, four questioners, so I don't think we can uh, accommodate a fifth. So just in case you were wondering. 
Rabbi, thank you for coming. Uh, this past weekend, um, I was introduced to uh, some people uh, that are Messianic Jews, which I didn't really, wasn't aware of, existed. But apparently they're Jews that practice Judaism but accept Christ as God. And my question to you is, I'm sure with all the people you've described, you've had discussions with, how do you uh, view Jesus? Who is Jesus to Judaism at this point? And if he's not God, how do, what, what position does that leave Christianity in um, from your viewpoint? Well, look, <clears throat> how long have we got? How long have we got? I'm saving my hard question for Very, uh, very, I will tell you. I'm sorry we're out of time. I'll tell you exactly what Robert Nozick wrote in the footnote of one of his books, the great uh, political philosopher at, at Harvard. He wrote, when the Messiah comes, he will be met by a delegation of Jews and Christians. They will say, welcome, Messiah. How good to welcome you. Tell us. Is this your first coming or your second? (laughs) And he adds, I advise the Messiah not to answer the question. (laughs) And neither will I. Hello, thank you again. You spoke of responsibility versus rights, which was something that kind of stuck with me throughout your presentation. And um, however, at the same time, I think about how to enforce that and how to uh, encourage that in our society. And I guess I'm I'm kind of less uh, left uh, not knowing how to encourage that within a society that is so stuck on rights and um, a lot less so on responsibility. And I was wondering what you might think about Mm. that. Well, I try and use the... uh facilities I have on radio, on television, uh, the television programs I make each year, just to single out role models uh, of people who have shown exceptional courage, exceptional uh, dedication. Um, We have, and the royal family do this very well indeed, we have youth courage awards where the royal family single out you know, half a dozen kids from all sorts of backgrounds in Britain each year, and we tell the story of their acts of responsibility. Uh, we have to muster all the media of communication we can find. Uh, I want to do a television program uh, when I get back home um, to emphasize a similar point, and I decided... Um, that I would try and get the manager of Manchester United. I don't know, you know, the British may not believe in God, but they certainly believe in the manager of Manchester United. Um, And I'd love to get him to talk about what qualities he looks for from his players, not as virtuosi, but as team players, because it's always the team that wins, not the individual. And, you know, I have to choose the role models. I had Bob Geldof on a couple of years ago uh, who did, you know, Band-Aid and Live Aid and and so on, just talking about what made him care so much about famine in Ethiopia. You use the role models, and um, eventually the message gets through. 
So, Jonathan, how concerned are you and how serious do you take the efforts by some in the Islamic world to impose Sharia law on Muslim communities in England and Western Europe? Yeah. It can't be done, and let me explain why it can't be done. Um, you may not know this. In fact, most Anglo-Jews don't know this. But one of the things I have to sign and agree when I am appointed chief rabbi is not to excommunicate anyone. As I said at the time, it takes away half the fun of the job. <laughs> but why do I have to agree not to excommunicate anyone? Because that would be a form of coercion. If I said, except the rulings of my rabbinical court, I am the head of our rabbinical court, except the rulings or I will excommunicate you, that would be coercive. And the definition of the secular nation state is that the state holds the monopoly on the justified use of coercive power. And that means that in America, everyone, but in Britain, everyone, ex every religious group except the Church of England, and America, every religious group, is in fact a voluntary association. And a voluntary association cannot impose its law on those who don't wish to abide by that law. You have to be free not to be bound by Sharia law if you're Muslim. You have to be free not to be bound by Halakha if you're a Jew. And we have to, had to work for the last 200 years without any form of coercive power. Now that makes life very difficult. There are situations where women are unable to remarry in Jewish law because their husbands will not grant them a religious divorce. We call that the problem of the Aguna. Where two, three hundred, four hundred years ago in the Middle Ages, a rabbinic court could excommunicate somebody if he refused to obey the rulings of the court. I can't. And therefore, we have to use influence, not power. We have to use mediation, not compulsion. There cannot be Sharia law, Jewish law, or any other law in a liberal democratic nation state. The state has all the coercive power. So, yes, there can be voluntary self-government as there is in any human association. But the idea that there could be Sharia law within Britain is impossible. It would actually mean the end of Britain.